So to provide some context to this panel discussion, Kent Police and Kent and Midway Partnership NHS Trust recently launched their new mental health strategy, which outlines how each of them will commit to supporting vulnerable people. This was launched at a conference in Maidstone uh, earlier this week, uh, and what we decided to do as part of that day was to have a discussion about the future of mental health legislation, given that it features within the new Queen's speech. We were really pleased to have a top panel, which included Tony Blaker, the Assistant Chief Constable of Kent Police, Helen Greaterix, who is the Chief Executive of Kent and Medway Partnership Trust, Amy Herring, who is the Young People's Representative and a Governor on Sussex Partnerships, and Kate Paradine, Chief Executive of Women in Prison. Uh, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. So this is, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, this is your opportunity uh, to hear about uh, a discussion on what we think mental health uh, and policing should look like in the future in the context of uh, the potential in this Parliament for there to be either uh, new secondary legislation or new primary legislation uh, around mental health. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I thought it would be a good idea to bring together uh, some people who have experience in this area, both from a policing, from a health uh, point of view, but also to look at it in its wider context uh, from the criminal justice system. Uh, so what I'd like to do to begin with, uh, this is going to be a trick with microphones, uh, I'm going to pass it down as, as best possible. Um, we'll start at the very end uh, with, with Tony Blake, the Assistant Chief Counsel, just to set out um, a few thoughts from each of our panellists. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for letting me go first. It's, um, it's a great honour. <laughs> so, um, it's been a really interesting day in terms of the presentation, and I certainly learned something myself coming here today, listening to other agencies and, 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 and meeting people such as Matt uh, in, in the coffee break to talk about the capacity of the community to support this. Um, I think there's two things I'd like to say. One is uh, the, the solution to mental health um, demand for policing and the avoidance of people coming into crisis um, really can't be something that statutory agencies do on their own because we don't have the capacity, uh, the people or the money or the time to give the community what it needs in terms of support around mental health because it's such a, a prevalent issue in many people's lives. And so what I'm really interested in, in exploring further is how do we effectively engage with um, community groups, uh, with, with charities, with other organisations who have part of the solution, which is the solution where communities can create the capacity to support each other. So I think for me, the thing I've learned from today is, is that we can do our bit of this strategy, but actually it's long-term success sits within building a relationship and a partnership with communities and, and other agencies outside of the statutory sector. Um, the other question around police power, which I've, I've pondered, um, it would be very easy for me to say that the solution for policing would be for the, for the police power of 136 to be removed and that power to be issued to another agency. That would be a very neat solution for policing in terms of um, shifting the demand uh, to someone else. Um, but I think what Helen and I have tried to demonstrate um, through our joint work on the strategy is saying is that we recognise that it must be a, a shared solution in terms of powers and responsibilities. Um, that, that people will at times need the police to be involved because there's a, a, a crisis where there's a risk to themselves or the public uh, or there's a, a offending occurred as a result of the, of the crisis so we always need to have a police involvement and, and presence within that situation but I think what we're looking for is to have a clearer definition about the, the roles and responsibilities of other agencies because the way the law is structured means that if other agencies um, haven't caught the person on their, on their journey into crisis, 
then by default we are left with the with the power and the responsibility to to safeguard that person and the public from from harm, and that involves using police power, section one three six. So I think the changes made by uh, uh, the government in the new legislation will be enacted around not using one three six and police cells for children and restricting the use for adults is the right way forward. I think we need to implement that and evaluate it and see how that, how that works. But the one thing I'd like to see change perhaps around the legislation would be um, some greater clarity of the duty that other agencies have um, in addition to our power. So uh, as with PREVENT, where the government has set out quite clearly for local authorities how they and communities can prevent um, extremism, I think for me it would be if we could have some greater clarity around the sort of positive obligations that other agencies have to do things so that we don't end up by default as being the agency that picks up the, the crisis in the, the day. So those are my initial thoughts. Helen Gracious. Thanks, Matthew. Um, I've got some expert colleagues in the room who've got all sorts of really good ideas about how the Act could be improved and, and sharpened up, so I'm sure they'll make their contributions and that'd be really helpful. Um, my reflections on the Act, when I, I started my nurse training as a mental health nurse in 1983 and have worked exclusively in mental health services for 34 years now, um, and I think the Act actually is pretty good, but I think it needs sharpening in some areas. I absolutely take your points, Tony, about um, Section 136. I've got a question about whether currently it is a bit broad and whether we need to be very specific about the basis on which we're applying it. Um, and I think I'd, I'd also like to see um, revisiting of some of the other options. So community treatment orders, for example, are a really helpful tool for mental health services, but currently they can only be used when someone's been admitted to hospital. So you have to, by default, admit someone to hospital and then apply a community treatment order. If we could do it instead of admission to hospital and really start using our community services, I think we might avoid admissions and potentially avoid the use of Section 136. Thank you. Amy? Hi, um, I'm a young person and I represent the children and young people in Kent, Sussex and Hampshire on behalf of Sussex Partnership and NHS England. And as far as I go, I have had experience with the police force as a victim and as an offender and I can say that the experience may have been a bit more positive than it could have been. Um, in terms of legislation and children and young people, they're young people and that is a crucial point. They're developing and that is the most crucial part of their life and we need to be much more specific when looking at young people and engaging with them. They're not adults and obviously it's suitable that they're not placed in a cell and that they go into an appropriate place of safety, which is why if there was to be some new parts of legislation that it's very specific, it goes into depth, we should not put adults and children and young people together in the same legislation, we should make them, we should separate them as they are both different ages and they are both different in many types of ways. If you look at areas of law, there's always some sort of age difference because the young persons, young people are generally different. Um, and I think the way we can do this is if we engage with the young people and we ask them what we ask them their feedback and how they feel when they are engaged with the service. Um, we can do this with our agencies, we can do this with our, our partners. It's not rocket science, basically. It's just communication. And if we, the whole room is full of passion for mental health, and if we use that passion, we can definitely make a difference. Oh, well said.
and Kate. Thanks, you've set me up now. <laughs> I'm going to speak for my full three minutes, if that's all right, Matthew. Um, I'm from Women in Prison, and just a show of hands, who's been into a women's prison? Quite a few of you, which is good. So I'm starting from a high base of knowledge. So women make up about 5% of the prison population. There's nearly 4,000 women in prison at the moment. That's an all-time high since um, five years ago, and it reflects the highest prison population across the board in Western Europe. We have a massive crisis in our prisons. Anyone that reads a tabloid newspaper will know what that looks like. The highest levels of suicide and self-harm recorded. Um, Twelve women took their own lives in prison over the last year, or 2016, and we have high levels of self-harm that are unprecedented. About 20% of self-harm is by women in prison, but that is less than it was before because self-harm among men is rocketing. So what we ask for in women in prison is attention to the issues facing women, but we also know that those are similar to those faced by men. And looking at Sarah's list of responsibilities, which I found quite distressing and stressful, just reading your list, really you could be the Minister for Prisons. Domestic violence, drugs and alcohol, mental ill health, these are things which are massively overrepresented in the prison population. And when you look at the group that is women, then it's even higher. So very high levels of experience of abuse. A third of women in prison grew up in care. When women go into prison, nine out of ten of their children end up out of their own home. So either with relatives, often their own grandparents, and even more so in care. So the cost to the state of sending women to prison is massive. And I know I'm preaching to the converted when I talk about that. So in terms of what changes we'd like to see, well, part of the responsibility for the rocketing um, population in prison is to do with successive um, governments. It's not to do with one government. But TR and the new power of recall, so the power to recall anyone for the period of a year who has spent over a day in prison, has sent the numbers of women um, being recalled to prison on short sentences to a very high level. So the reform that we would like is not in mental health legislation, but is in criminal justice legislation, and we'd like to see a review of the power to recall those on short sentences. Because 85% of those sentenced to prison who are women are sentenced for non-violent offences, often very short sentences. And those serving short sentences are more likely than not to end up back in prison within a year. So the case is absolutely overwhelming to do what we can to reduce the prison population. And Women in Prison and lots of our voluntary sector partners, also we're supported by PCCs, by MPs across all parties, believe that this government could half the women's prison population to 2020 by 2020. But that is going to require real, real commitment from people like you in this room and across the whole system. And mental health in particular is an area that if addressed properly could lead to a massive reduction in the prison population. In terms of a positive change, this links to what's already been mentioned by the panel, is much more clearer public duties on the state to provide resources in the community that mean that magistrates don't actually feel like they're doing the only thing they can, to, can do when they remand a woman in prison who has complex needs or they sentence someone to prison because they don't believe they've got a choice. So positive obligations and a presumption that mental health care would be provided in a community setting. 
So to go back to what I asked at the beginning, for those of you that's been into a prison or work connected to the prison system, you will know that what was said at the beginning by Matthew about the right care at the right time by the right person is really never prison. It is incredibly hard to provide any care that's meaningful when your attention is to keys and locks. And even getting women into counselling is a feat in itself in a prison setting. So the prison that many women from this area go to would see about a six-month wait for a counselling appointment. So when so many women are going to prison just for a few weeks or under six-month sentences, you can see how getting help is actually an impossibility. I think I've used my three minutes, haven't I, Matthew? Thank you. Um, whilst you've got the microphone uh, there, Kate, I, th I think one of, the th one of the clear things that came through from a lot of speakers was the need for other agencies or all agencies to come together. Uh, and obviously, as we all know, coordinating that often can be quite challenging. We have interdepartmental uh, committees, of which I know uh, Sarah's the vulnerability minister is on one. But do we need to go further than that and be more radical? Should legislation include a, almost a single point of contact within government? Should we have a mental health minister or a mental health commissioner who can work across government to bring all of those individuals together and hold to account? I'd be interested to know what yeah. the panel's view was on that. I mean, 10 years ago, Baroness Corston reported on the issue facing women in prison, but reflects the broader population. And cross-government machinery was seen as one of the most important measures. And we haven't actually got that after 10 years. So this time when we're talking about cross-party allegiances, and we are in a new age now to what we were a month ago, this is the time, we believe now, to have leads that are whole system leads. So whole system leads on reducing the women's prison population, on mental health. That is the only way forward because unless we've got the support at the top, those of you working on the ground here in Kent are going to struggle against a system that's broken. And I think generally it is widely agreed that that's what we're facing at the moment. Thanks, Matthew. Um, in short, I'm like it's tempting to say yes, 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 let's have someone labelled for mental health, but actually I think we need to recognise people are whole individuals. We are, I think, in a stronger position today than we've been for a long time in that we have um, the five-year forward view for mental health, and that out, sets out so clearly the expectations about investment. And just going back to that phrase of parity of esteem, we're not talking about parity of esteem anymore, we're talking about equality of investment. So the, the game is changing, and I think that's to be welcomed. Um, delivering five-year forward view is what we need to do for mental health and that means an investment at the right level from all concerned and a recognition that mental health will affect one in four of us or a mental health ill a mental illness rather will affect one in four of us at any time in our at some time in our life so that that's a, an enormous issue hence I think I wouldn't separate it I would say there is a minister for health the Minister for Health very clearly articulates his expectations with regards to mental health investment. And we have Simon Stevens as the NHS Chief Executive who's similarly focused on what needs to be done. Thank you. Um, uh, again, with regards to uh, other agencies, Amy talked about uh, young people. I'd be interested to know your views on uh, what schools could be doing to support young people. Is mental health a sufficient part of uh, school life? Uh, or do you think that we should have some form of, of mental health first aid or mental health awareness on the national curriculum? 
I think we need to be implementing mental health education from a very young age so young people grow up knowing that having a mental health problem is fine. It's nothing to be scared of and at the same time that can be reducing the stigma surrounded around um, speaking out about mental health um, and obviously I think schools can be doing so much more in the way we engage and the way school nurses engage with young people and how they then interact with other agencies and I mean for anything I mean many many years ago um, I probably wasn't around then but if you said people were ashamed to come out as gay uh, that that has reduced people you know there's celebrations of gay pride and I think because we've been teaching young people at an early age that that's fine if we can do the same with mental health and as long as the young person knows it's fine to have mental health then they can go on and be confident in their life knowing that it will not affect their chances because I mean I, I hope my chances aren't affected by mental health um, personally but yeah <laughs> we should be implementing it at a young age uh, one, for, one for Tony here oh, with, uh, looking through the questions and thank you to everyone who submitted I'll try to get through uh, as many I can in the most appropriate way uh, probably a more radical idea for police obviously now you have your mental health team um, the suggestions come in is that perhaps the police and mental health team could link with local job centres for a process plan for people in crisis at job centres uh, lots of early of intervention support, uh, but nothing for acute crisis. Do you think that that's uh, a way in which policing could look at working with statutory agencies in another way? Thank you. I think it's a, it's a really good uh, suggestion. What, what we have in mind is uh, that our mental health team will work out with, with partners, particularly the uh, mental health partners, around putting together those plans that avoid people coming back repeatedly needing help from the police. Um, for that to be effective, obviously, as, as Helen said in her presentation, there are often many things that trigger a crisis out of hours, and around whether it's housing, whether it's um, your relationship, or whether it's your substance misuse, or whether it's your, your, your employment. These are the, sort of the, the drivers that cause people to, to have a crisis in terms of those things not being managed. So I think where we can identify uh, with our partners relationships with, with uh, job centres and, and local authorities, district councils, etc., around housing, education, employment, we should build those networks locally and under the new Concordat structure um, that, that Rachel and Dave have put together there is a sort of, a, sort of a, a three area structure and I think it's within that that we should really try and drive the connection to our mental health team and other partners working locally. Um, what, I'm going to go, go for a question, I've got a question here from uh, Michael who's the acting CEO of, of Folkestone Mind. He's passed me an article from a, a young man called James Parkinson who made a video for Mental Health Awareness Week in order uh, to help people with their own uh, individual uh, situations. Uh, but this one is around um, suicide. Um, we, uh, I'll, I'll read out what he says. There have been eight known suicides in East Folks in the past 18 months. That's eight and a half times the county average for a resident population of 11,000 people. I personally dealt with, crisis, with three crisis interventions this year. There have been eight attempted teenage suicides since October 2016. Uh, at what point does uh, an area become a priority for support from statutory services? Helen? Thanks, Matthew. Um, our, our board is making suicide prevention a priority um, this year, and we're just about to sign up to the National Suicide Prevention Alliance that's being um, led across a number of agencies. Um, 
we know that not everyone who takes their own life is known to mental health services, but we also know that we could be doing much more in the community to, to spot people who might be at risk of taking their own lives. So we have a programme of work going on in our organisation, as you would expect, a mental health organisation, but we also have links to county-wide work that makes sure that everyone's involved, and that includes um, education, county council, um, and other partners are absolutely tragic to hear those stories and every single death is a loss of course. And in, in terms of uh, the awareness of, of suicide, I'm going to come to Kate in a moment to talk about uh, prisons. I think one observation I would have is that whilst these sad tragedies do get reported, they don't necessarily always get the same attention they rightly deserve. There was a startling statistic at the Police Federation Conference that between 2002 and 2013, 200 police officers took their own lives. Now, if 200 police officers um, had been murdered, we'd have action plans in place and uh, there'd be a national scandal. And I think if these eight people had been murdered as opposed to suicide, I think that there would be uh, a lot more focus and attention uh, paid to it. Um, Kate, can you give us some observations on this issue from the prison's point of view and the women's population? Yes, I will do. I mean, suicide, as I said before, is at an all-time high in a prison setting. And from the point of view of women in prison, our view is that actually that's a natural consequence of prisons being overcrowded, understaffed, but also the wrong people being in prison. Um, so from our point of view, the National Prevention Plan for Suicide needs to take attention to why it is that so many vulnerable people are ending up in a prison setting and taking their own lives. And if we do look at that, we see that it does come back to investment. Now, prior to the general election, there was a plan to spend £1.3 billion on new prisons, and that includes five new prisons for women. Now, given what I've said in my three-minute slot, that now is the time to re-look at that, because some of this does come down to hard cash. And at the end of the day, the voluntary sector organisations represented here, like ourselves, will know that it is a daily struggle to survive. So in terms of looking at what the state has to do, I think there has to be a whole system look at what's closing, what's not opening, and what the gaps are. Because these deaths aren't accidents. They are part of our decision-making around public policy. And now is the time to take a look and to say, what is going on in Folkestone, to take that example, that has led to this? And I think if we do that as a whole system, and there is a duty on the relevant Secretary of States to take account of this, then we can see action taken. But at the end of the day, it does come down to what we choose to spend our money on. We always say in women in prison, there's always room at the inn when it comes to prison. Magistrates are never told there's no room. They are told there's no mother and baby unit places in mental health facilities in the community for this woman that will now need to go into prison and be separated from her baby. Those are the realities that face magistrates and I think we need to look at demand and supply in the way we look at it in the commercial sector. Because if we privatise, then we have to take the consequences of that. And that's taking a look at what the gaps are and seeing where they need to be filled. Uh, thank you. Uh, next question I've got here is from Alan Hayes, and I'll come to you first, uh, Amy, on this one. Um, it's around support for children and young people. It says that it's essential that support is made locally uh, and out of hours. Um, do you feel that there is enough 
support for children and young people within the county, or do you think there is a danger that every now and then, or I know certainly historically there has been a, a, a issue with big people going without a county, and I don't have come in on that point uh, afterwards. Do you feel there's enough support out there for children and young people in the county at the moment? No, it's my honest answer, but I think we are going to get better. We have been improving and we are getting better. We know children and young people's mental health services are increasingly in demand, which is why we are going to be spending so much time looking at it, being creative and innovative on what resources we have to make local support available. We do have local support and this is by voluntary groups it's by charities, it's by uh, national organisations such as Minds, Young Minds particularly, um, but locally and as an organisation from the NHS there is so much more we can be doing, which is why we're going to be spending so much time looking at it in the future, well the, the sooner now actually. Um, I'm looking over to Dave here, who's our Head of uh, Children's Mental Health Commissioning, so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the, the second point about Alan Hayes's uh, question was around uh, places of safety close to people's homes, but stopping people going out of county, but also the same question, it had been a different way from uh, David Brake from uh, Medway. Much progress has been made to ensure individuals in crisis are pointed, stroke guided in the right direction. Where it is necessary to section someone, are there now sufficient placements locally, i.e. Medway, as well as other places across Kent, thus ensuring no one is sent out of area and across the country? Uh, and David, in Medway, of course, we still believe anyone having to be located outside of Medway is out of area. Thank you for that. That's a, that's a topic of frequent conversation with Councillor Brake and I. Um, the, the, the straightforward thing is we have enough beds. Does it? We have enough beds. Um, uh, it's how we use them that's the challenge. And... This time last year, um, colleagues who know me will have heard me talking about the fact that when I arrived, we, we'd got 76 people out in private beds, some as far away as Manchester and Hull, um, which was just appalling for those poor patients and their families, miserable for the clinical teams who look after them and know them so well because they didn't have any contact with them and couldn't help. Um, and then when we were bringing people back sometimes from, from private beds, um, we found that they hadn't been given medication that we knew would have helped them at the point at which um, they were admitted. So it really wasn't where we wanted to be. We set ourselves a target, we've achieved it. We don't have anyone in private beds today unless it's for a very specialist need. And that's meant uh, clinical leadership re-gearing our system, which then creates the capacity, which means that if officers have someone on a section 136 who needs to come to us for admission, we've got the capacity, not always, much more commonly now than, than we did have this time last year, but we're re-gearing the whole system. So yes, we do have enough beds. I absolutely understand the Medway point about, but we don't have any acute adult beds in Medway. I understand that. And so far, we haven't been able to find a solution for that. But I do, I do absolutely understand the point that's being made there. But yeah, we have enough beds. Uh, on the issue of 13611 for uh, Tony, um, this question from Stephanie. Is the criteria for 136 the right criteria? Uh, and should the criteria for 136 be reviewed to ensure that it uh, captures only those who require it, this level of intervention? Well, I think, as you know, the, the criteria for 136 is that, that, that a police officer believes someone is, is in need of, of care, uh, and police officers aren't trained to make sort of diagnoses of um, people's mental health needs. So it's a very wide-ranging power that offers a huge amount of discretion to the police officer 
to take what action they feel is appropriate to safeguard somebody who, uh, who's in distress. So I think it's very difficult um, with a, a, for a police workforce which is largely untrained in, in mental health treatment to make a, a more clear diagnosis that this person appears to be distressed and in need of care and control and, and taking somewhere safe. I think that's the appropriate power. I think what we need to be better at is making sure that where we encounter people um, in crisis that we have someone from the Mental Health Trust with us, as with the triage, or on the end of the phone, who can actually assist us with refining that decision, which is, it's okay to take this person home and leave them with someone to look after them, or take them to a crisis cafe, or to, or to do something different. I think it's to give our officers the confidence that they can make those decisions with help from partners to avoid unnecessary detention. So I think the power itself has to be relatively um, vague, but I think we need to be much, much better at um, working out how and when to use it. So I think that's the way forward. Um, but um, I welcome home with you in that, really. No, I'd concur. One of the standout moments for me from this morning was just hearing from colleagues who are working in the field that now people, as a result of street triage, who come into the 136 suites that we have are going on to be admitted. That's the test of whether we're... Um, using 136 uh, correctly. So I, I think if we're sitting here again in six months' time, there'll be a very different picture and we'll, our, our knowledge of each other's organisations and how we're working together will have improved the, um, the use of it. Um, but I think uh, Stephanie's an expert in the field, so it would be useful to catch up and just think about the, the further refinement of it, I think. So in terms of uh, 136 and not looking at the criteria, is that one way in which, as, as, Mr., uh, as Tony said in his opening remarks, that that's the way in which policing retains its role in mental health in the future? Or are there other things that it should and shouldn't be doing? Well, I think, the, um, as I said, the, the attraction would be for us to say, well, give the Section 136 power to another organisation, say the ambulance service. So you could say, hypothetically, the ambulance service are a health agency that respond to people in a time point of crisis around physical health. We can give that to them. I think that's um, problematic from a point of view with the, with the health service, as we know, the ambulance service are very, very stretched around dealing with the, the issues they've got. So, A, there isn't the capacity to do it right now, so it wouldn't really work. It would give a worse service. But secondly, quite often when people are in crisis, they're in um, circumstances where there is some associated um, public safety concern, there's a need to use force to, to contain that risk to the, to the person or the public. There's... There's, there's perhaps some sort of antisocial behaviour or, or criminal complaint around that person. So in those in circumstances, the police are always going to be an agency that needs to be involved. I think it's around working out how we can be involved in a um, thoughtful and, and, and considered way as opposed to having a blanket where you, you appear to be in distress, therefore we're going to put the police out. So I think that the modernisation of the use of the powers is the way forward in partnership. In an ideal world, in, in the future, if we ever get to a point where the ambulance service had the people trained and the capacity to be the people that responded to people in crisis without the police being involved, that would be a really good outcome. But I think that's a, that's a long way off in terms of a journey for, for public services. Uh, and Kate, in terms of the criminal justice system uh, itself, uh, another one of Stephanie's questions says, uh, we need a complete review of the way in which the Mental Health Act is applied. Uh, she says here in minors, but maybe perhaps widely. Do you think the Act is sufficiently supportive or conducive to people in the criminal justice setting? I think just to build on what I said before, the Mental Health Act does have limitations in terms of its application and the resources available to actually implement it safely and with the right people. And in terms of prisons, the access to care that enables that Act to be fulfilled is limited. 
Um, so we have, for example, IPP sentences, indeterminate public protection sentences, were declared illegal some years ago. Last week I was in a prison where there's a woman that was sentenced for 18 months for an offence and 16 years later she is still in prison because she cannot prove that she is safe enough to leave. Um, that's one case and last September one of the women that we've been working with for nine years um, died in a prison and she had been originally sentenced for the same length of time, nine years before, for a mugging offence. So these are the kinds of realities, and that woman, sadly, and this was a story that was published um, by the BBC recently, was waiting for a secure mental health bed, and that was what she was looking forward to, a secure mental health bed, to leave prison after nine years for a secure mental health bed. Now, if we can't deliver on that, it's a sad day. So again, it's more of a resources point that I'd like to make in relation to that question. <coughs> What was the point? Uh, sorry. Uh, so, the, uh, it was, uh, do you think the Mental Health Act is applied to minors under the age of 18 in a supportive and conducive way? Um, I think it really goes back to what I was saying in the beginning. We shouldn't be treating children and young people the same as adults. We really need to be sort of diving into this and creating a whole new sort of... Not creating a whole new legislation, but creating a new section on children and young people, going into depth about them, because they're not the same as adults. They have, they're developing still, and they've got different needs to adult needs, and they've got different priorities and different laws compared to adults, which is why I think we really should be looking at the Mental Health Act and the men just the mental health legislation in total and just focusing it on children and young people in a different way. Can I make one more point, Matthew? It's, just, it's about young people, actually, and a good news story of the last decade is the massive reduction in the use of custody with young people. So over a decade ago, there was well over 200 girls in prison, and as of um, a few months ago, there were only 30. So it shows that we can change, but we will only sustain that kind of change if we're able to invest in the sort of services that you're looking at. Thank you. Uh, the next question I've got is from uh, Mike E from East Kent Hospitals NHS Trust. Uh, as we know, A&E departments are and have been under tremendous pressure. Uh, how will proposals for places of safety impact upon emergency departments across the country? Helen? Thank you, Matthew. Um, yeah, we really don't want people having to go to uh, emergency departments, EDs, um, in mental health crisis, we want to stop the crisis before it happens. So we're we're doing in KMPT a number of things, um, and, I'll, and I'll touch on those in a minute. But before I forget, I think it's just worth going back to that point that Dave and Rachel made in their presentation about the national expectation set out in the five year forward view for mental health that by 2020 all um, emergency departments will have what they refer to as core 24 liaison services. So that means a, a mental health team on duty seven days a week 24 hours a day um that's great but oh for goodness sake if we're supposed to have that by 2020 and it's recognized as being a good idea why don't we have it now it's just why would we wait it's a whole system that needs sorting out so um we have um gained some central funding which is great news for our county because it means that our hospitals will have that 24-hour presence so that's good news allied to which then we're investing time in our community teams to make sure that people can be looked after properly in the community 
and moving our work to 24 hours, seven day a week. And in fact, um, we piloted over the Easter weekend asking some of the community mental health team staff to volunteer if they wanted to do it, to work over the Easter weekend. And it made a huge difference in the areas where we had it running um, to the number of people who got into crisis, needed to go to the emergency department, were picked up in other places. So um, clearly it's the way to go. We just need to get ourselves to a point where we're running things in that way much more quickly instead of waiting for um, 2020, which sounds way too far. Thank you. Uh, next one is uh, from Lorraine at Solace Cafe in Tunbridge. Uh, which I opened a couple of months ago. I'm pleased to see they're seeing quite a lot of people um, already. Um, her question is around referrals. As at the Solis Cafe, uh, they've been very busy. The clients have been numerous, but the majority have self-referred through word of mouth or the recent TV publicity or posters in the library. To further our joined-up approach, it would be great to have referrals also from other professionals as part of multi-agency working uh, and joined-up thinking. Can I go to, uh, to Tony first and, and say how would uh, policing appropriately use a resource like a crisis cafe? Well, um, the real challenge for us is actually knowing and understanding what's available in the community and uh, our new mental health team, um, one of their primary focuses is to make those connections and to connect the work of our, our frontline officers that respond to calls, investigate crimes to those services in the community. So we can't expect all of our officers and staff all the time to understand the, the, the services, what's available. What we can do is try and collect that centrally and make that information available to people. So a key key target for Paul and his team, um, which I can give him now, is to make sure that he's got the connection with you all in the room, that we provide a resource so we can provide it on our, on our internal uh, intranet uh, to our staff and make sure that officers know when they're on patrol, when the crisis cafe is open, what services they provide, and then again working with our uh, partners in street triage and with the counter triage is make sure that they know that there's an, there is a, an option to refer people to, and, and to put signpost people into those services. So we're really enthusiastic about um, the cafes and, and the commissioner's role in promoting them. Um, and if we can find out where they are, then we'll, we'll push people in that direction. So, yeah, another question here is, will there be more crisis cafe rolled out throughout Kent? If there is, is there a date uh, this will be achieved by? Well, uh, one of the things to say about the Solace Cafe is not only did I open it, I also provided funding towards it. Um, in conjunction with West Kent uh, CCG uh, and I'm about to announce the results of my mental health and policing fund uh, funding round which was a quarter of a million pounds for non-NHS services that will help reduce demand uh, on policing. Uh, that will be done later this week uh, and without saying too much, yes, there will be more crisis cafes if they can find some, uh, some match funding from other agencies. Uh, hint, hint. Um, so what I want to do now is we move on uh, to one more topic and then I'll ask the uh, panel to uh, sum up their thoughts uh, on this discussion. We heard um, earlier on uh, particular issues with regards to drug and alcohol uh, and one of the, one of the issues that uh, I know that officers face with regards to Section 136 uh, and mental health cases has been around uh, drug and alcohol. Um, if I start with, with Kate down the end, um, what impact uh, do you feel drug and alcohol uh, has on this issue and what needs to be done in order to help address it. Again, it, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, um, the substance misuse issues in prison, alcohol and drugs are, are massive, as, as everybody who has anything to do with prisons knows. 
and that is due to a lack of investment in community services, particularly for groups that are excluded or feel not included in some of the existing services. So women would be one group. So specialist services, we think there should be a lot more attention to groups that aren't served by those that exist already. Um, in terms of change in prisons, um, access to community services rather than prisons having to provide their own. So the ability to be more flexible with people accessing services is absolutely key. What amazes us is the lack of attention to the realistic world, which shows that substance misuse problems are often the result of a whole series of issues, mental ill health, trauma in childhood, domestic abuse, and I think it comes back to that point made earlier about it's the whole person that we should be paying attention to and joining up services. And I think it may have been Sarah earlier that said about mental health and substance misuse services not always joining up as they should, but in prisons they have to. Um, so I think there are lots of ways we can do more. And I know in this area there's a lot of hope um, in terms of the things that are going on, including conferences like this. Thanks. Amy. Yeah, I just want to raise a point about um, children and young people and substance misuse. I mean, as teenagers, they do experiment a lot, and quite a lot of teenagers, and quite a majority do, in different ways. But I think substance misuse is the same as self-harming. It's self-medication. It's a cry out for help. And sometimes, um, for example, if a young person is taking cannabis, it helps them feel relaxed and it takes their mind away from what's going on. And this isn't, if someone, if a young person says they're using substances to help with their mental health, then that is something we should be seeing as urgent because they could be they could become addicted and it could lead to worse problems. Um, some studies and evidence does show that some substances uh, after frequent use do lead to other mental health such as schizophrenia, and we should really be addressing a young person who's using substances. I mean, any age, actually, not just young people, anyone. Thank you, Matthew. I think it's an issue that requires revisiting. There are, there are Kate's right, there's a lot of work going on. I think we should be bold and ambitious. We should look at international studies that show what really good practice looks like and think too about the communities in which we live because I think there are different sorts of substance misuse. Not everyone has got a mental health problem or wants to engage in treatment. So how do we then, if that's becoming more apparent, how do we work with those individuals to keep them safe and the communities in which they live safe? So I think there's an opportunity for a wider debate about this with some um, investment and consideration about whole pathways. I think the, um, the problem with uh, working in custody was that many of the people that came in had been drinking or taking drugs and then the, the, the mental health services would say it's, uh, it's something we can't help you with because the, the root is, is, is drink or drugs and, and I think Helen said earlier that having some sort of service that recognises that those more complex people need a different sort of, of care is probably what we're looking for because you can't separate people into different aspects of their, of, of their problems. You can't sort of compartmentalise substance abuse and alcohol and, and mental health. It's kind of an integrated problem. So I'd really look for, for people to commission the, the right sort of services they're looking at, Dave. Can you, can you change the commissioning and get the services that, that address that issue? It's nodding. 
It's not me. You got that on the record now because I'm recording it. Um, uh, one final question then uh, for the panel uh, is actually, we've talked a lot about mental health, the people that we interact with, but also uh, I think we do need to have a discussion about individual mental health. Um, what, I mean, obviously, I mentioned earlier with regards to police officers and suicide, what more can we be doing to support each of the people who work for us and work with us with their own mental health? Do you want to start, Tony? Thank you. I'm, I'm really proud that I work for an organisation where mental health is, is championed and, and the welfare of our workforce is at the forefront of all the things that we do um, through our leadership. Uh, and, and we've maintained a significant investment in occupational health, in uh, promoting uh, mental health as a topic that can be discussed within the force, a number of initiatives, and we continue to explore that through our HR services. So I think it, from, a, from a leadership point of view, is those people that lead organisations need to continue to recognise that Working in public service, working on the front line um, in, in these tough jobs uh, takes a toll on its people. They see things and they deal with things that are impacting on them and then they have their own lives to deal with as well. So I think there's a real leadership responsibility across all of the agencies involved around recognising is that they need to look after their own staff because if they don't do that, then aren't their staff can't look after the public. Thanks, I would absolutely agree. And I think it's about setting the tone and the expectation that it's my responsibility and the organisation for whom I work's responsibility to make sure that I have the ability to look after myself and that it's, that it's part of being a good worker is taking care of your own mental health and having opportunity to do that in working time. And um, like you really, um, Tony, we've, we've got that ambition. I don't think we're as far down the road in KMPT as you are in Kent Police, but that's certainly where we're heading. Yeah, I think going back to Tony's point, we really do need to look after the staff that are in the organisations because without the staff, how can we deliver a service, an effective service as well? Um, but, I mean, it's not just about listening to the service users and showing compassion and care towards the service users. It's, it's seeing them as an in, a unique individual. Every single one of us in this room is different from the other, and that's great because, I mean, if you look at it, Cereal. If no one one day put milk on top of cereal, we wouldn't have milk on our cereals, which is now a normal thing. So, <laughs> so I think it, we need to just see everyone as unique and individual, and, and accept the flaws that they present because that is part of their uniqueness. So, really, just showing care and compassion towards each other. Yeah. I, I'm not going to add to that. <laughs> uh, thank you. Well. Before, before I say thanks to, to the panel and, and hand over to the, to the Chief Constable, does anyone on the panel a, a final thought, want to sum up uh, this discussion in, in a couple of sentences? Anything you wanted to add that I've maybe not asked you about? Um, I, I can't leave this panel without saying what a joy this morning has been. I've had a number of conversations with colleagues who have noted that this is the first time, the first time in this county that we've got ourselves together to have these sorts of conversations and all power to us really because we've got the opportunity to change things none of this to use your phrase amy is rocket science actually it's straightforward and we all know what we need to do so it feels to me like this is the perfect platform to really set ourselves some stretching targets and let's come back this time next year and um, celebrate the progress that we'll have made again yes thank you helen um for me, from a policing point of view, because I kind of guess that the, the purpose of the conference was to sort of look at how can we improve the delivery of service uh, around mental health and policing, is that we've heard how the demand on policing from, from mental health 
people with mental health issues coming to crisis is really driving our, our business now. And, and certainly for me, it's about can we reframe the mission of the, of the police? We're not just about cutting crime. We're about community safety and safeguarding people who are vulnerable. And there's something for me around can we sort of shift the, the sort of narrative around policing to being what it's really about now. An ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. That's, that's the Tom Windsor's quote. And I think certainly for me, when we're dealing with people in mental health crisis, it means that we haven't worked effectively earlier in the process. I think we've really got to focus on prevention going forward. Um, we need to focus on those with the greatest need because there are a, a group of, our, of people in our community who are the greatest risk of crisis, the greatest risk of suicide. And can we identify those people and really target the, the services around that? And for me, lastly, it's just as I reiterate what Helen says is, I really encourage that we've got a partnership between Kent Mental Health Trust and, and, and Kent Police. I'd like to broaden that partnership to some other people in the room for our conversations because we, we've moved, I think, from partnership to a, to a collaborative approach now. But to be successful, I think we need to, to really integrate our services and we've got a whole system approach to, to making things work for the people that need our help. We need to integrate our services and, and join them up more effectively. So it's a really good start, I think, and we'll, we'll come back in the year and see how we've done. Um, as a national organisation working in this space, I just wanted to say that I think, and a lot of us working on the national stage in terms of this area of need, complex needs, think it's a time of great hope. And I think that that's a key message that's coming across, that now's the time to show what the nation is made of. And there is a saying that if you want to see what a nation is made of, you look at its prisons and see how it treats its prisoners, but also you could extend that to people in mental health crisis and the sort of people that you're dealing with at the sort of lowest, their lowest ebb, the poorest, the most in need, the most disadvantaged. And I think today has been really uplifting for me because to see so much going on locally and a demonstration locally of the hope that we see nationally, I think it's, it's great. And also the ministers now leading us at this time, I think we're really pleased that there's been reappointment so we don't have to start again, which is the dread of all organisations working in this space. And the likes of Philip Lee and Sarah, I think there's great hope. So, and thank you. I just think it's great that mental health is really being seen as being something that's in need. We need services and we need resources and we need funding and people recognise that now. And it's great that everyone's recognising mental health is such a major issue in society now and that it's affected so many people. And all I can say is just if you ever need anyone to talk to, call someone, talk to a friend, talk to a family member and just keep yourself safe. Your mental health is so important and the world wouldn't be what it is without you. You do have an impact on the world and everyone is so grateful and for everything you all do. Um, so anyway, Matthew, what do you think of this panel anyway? <laughs> I think you're all wonderful. Um, well, can, I, can I start by asking for a round of applause for our panel, please? I think it's been really good that we, we've covered quite a lot of uh, topics in this area, not been afraid to shy away from some really difficult issues, uh, and actually to hear Amy being so inspiring from a, a mental health point of view and, and encouraging people to uh, speak out, I think, is to be commended. You've been a real star on this panel, Amy. Well done. Oh, thank you. Um, but uh, what I would like to say is um, thank you very much to everybody who has given up their time to join us this morning. Thank you to the panel uh, for also putting themselves uh, up for this. The, the feedback from this panel and also your questions will go into uh, a submission to the Department of Health and the Home Office 
uh, in due course. So you can say that at the very early stages, uh, you've been part of something that will hopefully influence something which is uh, better for the people that we all want to support. Uh, so again, can I say thank you very much to the panel. Give them a round of applause. Thank you.